So reading from verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for this time to, to come to your word. And as we come uh, to a passage that may be unfamiliar with us, uh, uh, for many of us, uh, Lord, we pray that um, as we spend time, that your spirit would minister to us, that you would speak into our hearts, Lord God, that that our eyes would be drawn to you, that our hearts would be stirred to, to glorify you and to, to rest in your presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may or may not be aware that Monday just passed was Blue Monday. The third Monday in January is said to be the most depressing day of the year. Although it could be argued that, that any day in January in Scotland could, could argue for that title. Uh, it can be a bit of a slog, can't it, with the, the dark mornings and the, the short days. These are uh, some pretty long winter months. But there's a sense in which for many of us, uh, the last few years have felt a bit like one long dark winter. The challenges of recent times have impacted us all in different ways. For some of us, that may have uh, left us with larger questions about our lives and our place in the world. Uh, where can I find certainty in a world that's full of so much uncertainty over these last few years? Uh, for others, as we look at the year ahead and perhaps uh, beyond that, we may have just got to a point where we are really struggling for any real enthusiasm or optimism about the future. Uh, we've become apathetic about life in general, and perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, that sense of apathy would very much describe our relationship with God. If we were being totally honest, maybe it's a long time since we felt any real sense of God's presence, and our relationship with Him of late has been more of a dry, religious one, lacking any real sense of joy or excitement. Maybe we're plugging away, turning up at church Sunday by Sunday because we think that's what we ought to be doing, but really we're just going through the motions. There's nothing particularly living and active about our faith, and maybe we've even begun to grow a bit cynical not just of uh, our brothers and sisters around us, but of God himself. Well, if that's you, then the book of Malachi is a great place to turn because it's a book 
written to a people who were very much in that boat. It's a book that acts as a wake-up call for those who have become cynical about God's love. A book that if we take its message to heart, it should reinvigorate our relationship with God and our confidence in his promises. A book that should fill us with hope as we lift our eyes to him and look to the future, whatever we might be feeling right now. It's a book that declares God's love in a time of apathy. And that's exactly where we begin today. If you look with me at verse 1, Malachi writes, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So right at the beginning of this book, we learn that what follows is a message from God for his people declared by the prophet Malachi. Malachi was writing sometime around 450 BC. Uh, at that point in Israel's history, um, they had been in exile and had returned. The temple had been rebuilt about 50 years previously, uh, and uh, they were living in the land. But nothing much seemed to be happening. No sign of miracles, uh, no sign of God's promised king that the Israelites were waiting for. Uh, and they were living under the thumb of a foreign nation. The people were just going through the motions with seemingly nothing to get excited about. And it's into that situation that God speaks. And look what he tells them, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Apathy, cynicism, they arise from an excessive focus on self, on my feelings, on how I perceive the world around me and the thoughts and intentions of others. There's been a lot of talk uh, about uh, over the last couple of years about the long-term effect of lockdowns on people's mental health. When you, when you endure uh, enforced isolation and a loss of community, that tendency to bend in on ourselves is heightened. And that can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. Uh, anxiety and depression are obvious ways that have been highlighted over the last couple of years. But apathy and cynicism would also be ways in which that heightened focus on self has shown itself. Alongside that, uh, we have seen over the last few years that the rapid rise of radical individualism in our society that's a philosophy that says that, that my identity is defined by how I feel. To find out who I truly am, to define the world around me, I need to look within to my feelings. So what you have is this toxic recipe of self-centered thinking that has been intensified through enforced isolation and a prevailing worldview that it emphasizes the primacy of the inner self. And that manifests itself in lots of damaging ways. Not just ways that damage ourselves, but ways that damage others as well. And we'll see some of the ways that that plays out as we, we go through this book. But notice where this book begins. It doesn't begin with the people. It doesn't begin with their feelings. It doesn't begin with how they view the world around them. No, it begins with God. And it begins with God making the most extraordinary statement to a people who had turned in on themselves and away from him. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. God begins by reminding his people of his love for them. I love you. Those are three incredibly powerful words, aren't they? Words that bring joy, words that bring comfort and hope. But of course, those words, they only mean something when they are expressed by someone who has demonstrated that love through their actions. You know, walking up to some random person on Leith Walk and telling them that you love them, that's not going to mean too much to them, is it? They have no framework for recognizing if what you are saying is true. But expressing your love to your spouse or your children or a deeply valued friend, that means something because they can look at the ways in which you have demonstrated that love to them. God expresses his love for Israel. He says, I have loved you. Now, that doesn't mean that he once loved them, but he doesn't love them anymore. No, he is pointing to the fact that his love has been demonstrated throughout their history. And that's what makes their response in verse 2 so heartbreaking. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Now, this is not the response of an open-minded doubter wondering about the many ways in which God might love them. No, it's a closed-minded, bitter, cynical response from people who should have known better. A people who were so consumed by the bitterness of their present circumstances that they paid no regard for the way that God had demonstrated his love for them throughout their history. Life wasn't going as they wanted it to. And so their response was to take it out on God, to demand that he prove his love for them, that he do better, that he meet their needs. Their response, it showed a complete lack of love and trust in God. And it was that lack of love and trust in God's love for them that set them on the downward spiral that plays out in the rest of this book. Throughout this book, they cynically question God at every turn. Their lack of love for him, it leads to a lack of worship, which leads to a lack of obedience, which leads to serious sin which causes incredible harm to the people of God. When we grow cynical about God's love for us, that leads to bitterness and hostility towards God and towards his people, which then works itself out in all kinds of damaging ways that we see in this book. I wonder... How would you respond if someone that you loved deeply threw that love back in your face? A family member, a Christian brother or sister, a friend. Maybe you've endured that incredibly painful experience. If you found yourself in that situation, then the temptation 
would certainly be there to have nothing more to do with that person, to, to end that relationship. But despite their complete lack of love for him, God graciously responds in love to them. He answers their question. Look with me at verse 2. The people cynically ask, how have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what are we meant to do with that response? God says, you want to know how much I love you? Well, I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now, hearing God say something like that, maybe that makes you feel very uncomfortable. It's not the kind of thing that you maybe expect to, to see in the Bible or hear God say. So how are we meant to make sense of it? Well, what God is doing here is reminding the people of their history. And he goes right back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and he reminds them of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The boys were twins, and in fact, Esau was the older of the two. So by right, he was the one who should have inherited God's blessing from their father, Isaac. But instead, God gave that privilege to Jacob. And it was out of the family of Jacob that the nation of Israel was established, while Esau's descendants were the Edomites that are referred to in this passage. And so when the terms love and hate are being used here, it's not hatred in the sense that we might think of it in terms of personal animosity towards someone. No, it's talking about God's decision to choose one brother over another through whom he would fulfill his purposes. To enter into a special relationship with Jacob and his descendants rather than with Esau and his descendants. And that was the privilege that was given to Israel. Six times in these opening five verses, we see the name of the Lord in block capitals. And wherever we see that in the Bible, it's a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. It was the name that God gave for his people to use. It was a name that reminded God's people of their covenant privileges of how they could enjoy an intimate relationship with him and trust in his promises to them, how they could know his blessing. It was a name that reminded them that Yahweh loved them, that he had chosen them as his own, and he was going to work out his purposes through them. God's love for his people was so lavish, so generous, so steadfast, that anything else looked like hatred by comparison. And this is a theme that we see in the New Testament when Jesus says to his followers that anyone who comes to him and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, cannot be his disciple. Jesus is not saying that we need to literally hate those nearest and dearest to us. That would be a denial of his call to love one another. No, he's saying that our love for him, our devotion to him should be so great that anything else looks like hatred by comparison. And that's the dynamic 
that's going on here in Malachi. God's love for his people is so great that anything else looks like hatred by comparison. But even allowing for that, what's clearly stated here as the primary evidence of God's love for his people is that he chose one brother over another. That he gave his blessing to Jacob and not to Esau. That his covenant was with Israel and not with Edom. And we might be tempted to ask, how is that fair? How is it fair that God would choose one and not the other? That he would choose to be merciful to one and not the other? That he would choose to work out his promises through one and not the other? Well, the answer is that in a sense, it isn't fair. If you go back and read the story of Jacob and Esau, you'll find in Genesis chapter 27, uh, uh, what you'll see there is that, that Jacob was no more deserving of God's blessing than Esau. Both Jacob and Esau, uh, they were guilty of sin. Esau tre uh, tread on his birthright. He, he sold it for a pot of stew. And, and Jacob was guilty of lying and deception. Both of them were guilty of selfishness and self-centeredness. Neither brother deserved God's blessing. If God was being fair, then both brothers would have been condemned for their behavior. But God, in his mercy, chose to bless Jacob. And through Jacob, a whole nation, Israel. They didn't do anything to earn it. They did nothing to deserve it. And yet God committed himself to them. He entered into a covenant with them. He saved them from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. He promised to dwell with them and their descendants. He promised to provide for them. He repeatedly delivered them from their enemies and was merciful to them despite their sin and rebellion. He answered their prayers. He kept sending them prophets and, and priests to remind them of his love and his promises to them. And he promised them a king who would one day rule forever in love and justice and peace. And here they were, back in the promised land, after exile in Babylon, worshipping at a rebuilt temple. They wouldn't have even existed as a nation if God hadn't remained steadfast in his love and faithfulness to them. These cynical, sulky people had lost sight of the words of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Words that were written for them. They'd lost sight of the wonder of God's mercy in their lives. A mercy and grace that had been lavished on a disobedient and rebellious people for generations. A mercy and grace that despite their sin, despite their ungratefulness, was still being offered to them amidst their sulking. This passage closes with a wonderful promise from God that these ungrateful people would see for themselves the wonder of God at work. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's an incredible promise from a wonderfully gracious God. 
that despite their cynicism and bitterness towards him, God wasn't finished with them. Far from it. He met their gripes with a glorious promise. You see, the Bible is clear that God is perfectly just and fair in all his dealings, and at the same time, he is merciful and gracious. But how can that be? How can God deal justly with sin and rebellion and yet be gracious to a sinful, rebellious people? How could he enter into a covenant with Israel and promise to be faithful to them when as a just God, they deserved the same judgment that Edom deserved? Well, the answer is found in the one who fulfills all God's promises. The promised king that Israel had been waiting for. See, maybe today you find yourself in a similar place to these Israelites. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're uh, sought to be faithful to God. But maybe your circumstances are bitter. Maybe things are not going the way that you want them to in your life. Maybe that's led to bitterness towards God. Maybe you're cynical about God's love for you. Well, can I urge you today to recognize the destructiveness of that kind of attitude? And to turn away from yourself and to the one who offers mercy and grace even to cynical hearts. To reflect on the fact that you have far more reason than even these Israelites to revel in God's love for you. See, like Israel, none of us deserve God's mercy. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. What we deserve for our sin is God's just and holy judgment. But in his mercy, God does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gives us Jesus. When God says to his people today, I have loved you, We don't just look back at his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, as wonderful as they are. We don't just remember his his rescue, his miraculous rescue in the Exodus, or the way that he repeatedly forgave and delivered his people through the the time of the judges and and, and kings, or the way that he, he brought his people back from exile and rebuilt the temple. No, we have far more reason to be sure of God's love for us. And that is because it is a love that has been fulfilled at the cross. It's at the cross where we see the perfect justice and wrath of God and the incredible mercy of God meet in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died in the place of sinful people. Does God love me? Peter Adam writes, if we try to answer that question in terms of how we feel or in terms of how blessed we are in the way that God has met our needs or desires or in terms of comparing ourselves with others, we may at times doubt God's love. The overwhelming and convincing proof of God's love is that he has not dealt with us 
as our sins deserve, but has had mercy on us in Christ Jesus and his atoning death. When God says, I have loved you, we can lift our eyes to our Savior Jesus. We can look to the one who bore the punishment that we deserve so that we might know God's mercy. We can remember the one who has saved us from the just judgment and wrath of God, even though we'd done nothing to deserve it and could never possibly earn it. We can rest in the fact that if we have put our trust in Christ, then our past is completely forgiven. All our sin, all our shame has been nailed to the cross. And we now wear the perfect, spotless robes of our Savior, cleansed, renewed, blameless in God's sight. And we can look forward with hope and confidence Because the one who died rose to life again, securing for us a glorious eternal future. And it says we lift our eyes to him as we place all our present circumstances, however bitter they might be, in the context of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's then that we see how he has loved us. And we can begin to respond in love. We can begin to love him passionately, to worship him wholeheartedly, and to live every day for him in response to his grace and love in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us Lord, that that is not just words, but that that love is grounded in your glorious salvation that has ultimately been demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus, we can know what it is to have our sins forgiven, to know that your just and holy wrath has been met in his sacrifice so that we might receive mercy and grace. Lord, we pray today that that would be the grounds of our, our, our understanding of what it is to be loved by you. That however we feel, whatever circumstances we might be going through right now, that we would not lose sight of the glorious, eternal story of salvation, that our past is forgiven and our future is secure if we've put our trust in Jesus. We pray that today that would fill our hearts anew with joy and thankfulness and confidence that our desire to, would be to respond to you in worship and wholehearted devotion. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.